Amen. Hey, it's, it's good to be here. I'm, I've been in bed since about Thursday afternoon and I uh, got up this morning, so here I am. Uh, <laughs> looking forward to it, actually. Uh, hey, if you weren't here last week, uh, we started a new series in the book of Habakkuk. So if you, if you can, go ahead and make your way over to that. That's a, a little book in the Old Testament known as one of the minor prophets, Habakkuk. Uh, we started last week and, we, and I, I, I said... Why would we go to this tiny little book written 26, 2700 years ago? Uh, because I, I think it just, just has so much for us today, so much for where every one of us are at, uh, or have been, or will be. Uh, I, I think we can all relate to Habakkuk. There's, there's just times in life, if, you've, if you live long enough, and it doesn't even take that long, uh, where, where life is going to hit you, and it's not going to make sense and the things that you see around you and in your life and in the world aren't going to make sense. And so what, what do you do with those things? And, and I've said, I said last week, if, if we're going to, if we're going to um, grow, if we're going to be a beyond a two-year-old kind of hashtag blessed kind of Christian uh, that only views uh, God's work in our lives through the blessings that we uh, can associate with, uh, then, then we're going to just have to go deeper into who God is and how he works, uh, realizing that um, he is God and we aren't. And so last week, uh, Habakkuk uh, has this complaint. He's concerned. See, he's lived through uh, a period of great idolatry by the people of God. And then Josiah comes on the scene and, and there's this massive revival in the land and, and everyone is excited about God again. And then Josiah dies in battle and his sons within about a decade uh, lead the nation back worse, worse than they were to begin with. And Habakkuk, the prophet of God, is crying out to God saying, God, don't, don't you see this? Don't you see what your people are doing? There's violence, there's injustice, there's oppression. Aren't you doing anything about this, God? And, and last week we just saw that God preserves in his word just many, many examples of God's people coming to him lamenting, just saying, God, I don't, I don't get what's going on. I don't, I don't know why you're, why you're doing what you're doing. And, and so he gives us permission to lament. Because we are finite creatures. We don't understand everything. And so we can come to God and just say, Lord, Lord, I, I, I don't get it. Well, well, that's where we're at in the story. But uh, today I just have one point to make. And, and me getting sick on Thursday actually helps make the point. This one point that is wildly unpopular in our culture today. Uh, this is not a point that's going to grow any churches. It's not going to sell any books. Uh, it, it is wildly unpopular. So I've got some work to do here uh, in this, but, but I, I'm bringing out this point, not because I want to do unpopular points, but because I am for your joy, like, like rock solid joy, not, not, not transitory happiness that is so tied to our circumstances and sometimes not even tied to our circumstances because we've all felt good on Monday, on Tuesday, nothing new has changed and, and felt downcast. Like, like, I do that almost on a weekly basis. Like, there's this kind of up and down uh, in my spirit and my soul. But I'm not talking about that. I want your joy. Now, if we're going to get to that, uh, there's some difficult things to, to get through before we found, find the foundation of our joy in that. So if you, if you found your way over to Habakkuk chapter 1, uh, we're going to start there. Before I get there, 1977... NASA sent out Voyager 1. Anyone know what Voyager 1 was? 
Voyager 1 was a spacecraft to, uh, the mission was to take up close photos of Jupiter and Saturn and its moons. And so uh, in 1980, it, it finished its tour of Saturn and sent back these images that we had never seen before, just amazing images. And, and then at that time, uh, a philosopher, atheist, a very famous American named Carl Sagan asked NASA to turn the camera and, and point it at the U.S., at the, US, uh, at, at <laughs> the Earth. And uh, uh, at the time, NASA said, no, we think that the reflection from the sun and all that will destroy the camera. We can't do that. And so um, the mission was done. And so they just flung that thing out outside of our solar system, like head, head out there. And, and for the next 10 years, uh, it, it was just booking its way outside of the solar system. Finally, in 1990, NASA agreed to, to turn the camera and, and use it one last time and, and take a series of 60 pictures uh, of our solar system with Earth in it. And in fact, we have a picture of it up here. Uh, you can, actually can't see it here. Not in this light. Uh, but actually, even if, even if it was crystal clear, about a tenth of one pixel would be Earth. Now you can imagine this. It, it would be right around in this area here. Um, and Carl Sagan has a very famous quote. He calls it the, the pale blue dot. Now I just want to read you a quote from Sagan of this picture that is so amazing for you right now. He says this, We succeeded in taking that picture from deep space and if you look at it, you see a dot. That's all you would see, so you can imagine a dot. It's mankind's best selfie right there, getting everyone in there. This is 1990, uh, Valentine's Day. So I'm a sophomore in high school at this point. Guarantee I don't have a date uh, at this point. I know where I'm, where I'm at. Where were you at in 1990? Maybe you weren't even here yet? Okay. Uh, maybe you were in grade school, college, something like that. Think about where you're at. You, you didn't even know you were getting your picture taken, but your picture was getting taken at that moment. He says, that, that's here. That's home. That's us. On it, everyone who ever heard of, every human being who ever lived, lived out their lives. The aggregate of all, aggregate of all our joys and sufferings, thousands of confident religions... Ideologies and economic doctrines, every hunter and forager, every hero and coward, every creator and destroyer of civilizations, every king and peasant, every young couple in love, every hopeful child, every mother and father, every inventor and explorer, every teacher of morals, every corrupt politician, every superstar, every supreme leader, Every saint and sinner in the history of our species lived there on a moat of dust suspended in a sunbeam. The earth is a very small stage in a vast cosmic arena. Think of the rivers of blood spilled by all those generals and emperors so that in glory and in triumph they could become the momentary masters of a fraction of a dot. Think of the endless cruelties visited by the inhabitants of one corner of the dot on scarcely indistinguishable inhabitants on some other corner of the dot. How frequent their misunderstandings, how eager they are to kill one another, 
how fervent their hatreds. Our posturing, our imagined self-importance, the delusion that we have some privileged position in the universe are challenged by this point of pale light. Now the Bible is going to agree with 99% of what Sagan just said there. But Sagan, remember, he's a dialectical materialistic atheist, and so let me just say a word about that. He'll go on in this very famous speech at a, at a, at a college to say, uh, from this picture, uh, give a reason why we should treat each other better. But there is, no more, there is no philosophical foundation in his worldview to say that rivers of blood are somehow worse than loving one another. There's just not. Sagan makes a leap in logic. He, he borrows the ethical capital of Christianity and says we should treat each other better because we're in this small little dot. Now, now here's what the Bible agrees with. It's a very small dot in a vast cosmic universe. But we do have a privileged position in the universe. It's we are image bearers of God. And even if our... Even if our uh, little dot in the universe is very tiny. God has endowed each of us with with value because we represent the one who created us. And and therefore, there is a foundation to to love one another well. But but when you see the picture, you see that we're very, very small. And and here's the point. We are limited, finite creatures. And and the reason why that's wildly unpopular is because we're enamored with our own potential, Right? Like spring training's about to start up. Listen to how they talk about the rookies. Not the guys that have been there a long time. Like the rookies. Oh, this rookie pitcher, he's got unlimited potential. Like, really? Hey, he throws 768 mile per hour fastball. Like, no, you can juice him up with all the HGH and all those other things. And maybe for two or three years, he'll throw that fast. But his potential is limited, bro. I'm just telling you, it's limited. But we don't like to think about that. We, we like to think we, we actually have unlimited potential. And so we tell our kids, you could be anything you want to be. That's just not true. Like, I wanted to be a wide receiver for the Denver Broncos. In high school, I was 150 pounds when I was wet and wearing boots. Like, they, it's just not who God made me to be. I did not have and I do not have unlimited potential. Have very limited potential, very limited strength, very limited knowledge, very limited in every area that we can think of, we are limited, but we don't believe that. Oh, we believe, for example, that, that we'll only live for a little bit of time, but no one here's thinking, no one here's penciling death into their calendar next week or next year, and if we're honest with ourselves, maybe not even the next decade. But because we, we like to uh, think of ourselves as, uh, as, as the ones that determine uh, our, our destiny. And, and Habakkuk's going to challenge us on that. And in, the, in challenging us in, on that, I believe we'll find the, the foundation for our joy. So let's look at it here. We're in verse 5 today. We'll, we'll cover the rest of chapter 1. It says this, the Lord is going to answer Habakkuk's complaint. Habakkuk was crying out, how long, how long should I cry out? Why are you allowing this? And God's going to say, oh, oh no, I, I see the injustice as well. And don't worry, Habakkuk, or Habakkuk, however, I don't know how you pronounce it. Um, actually, no one knows how you pronounce it. It's an Akkadian name. Uh, but he's going to say, uh, 
I see it, and, and I'm at work. Look, look what it says, verse 5. Look among the nations and see, wonder, and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. Now, that's not what it sounds like, by the way. Uh, this should not be on a, a mug. This should not be uh, embroidered into a doily. Uh, this should not be on a youth retreat t-shirt, although I have seen this verse on a youth retreat t-shirt. Why? Because of the context. He, he's, not, he's not comforting Habakkuk. He's like, look, I'm about to tell you what I'm going to do, but you're not going to get it and you're going to hate it. You're going to be astounded. Oh, you're going to be astounded. You're going to be appalled. You're, 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 so so don't, don't highlight this verse and make it your life verse. This is, this is God saying to Habakkuk, buckle up because you, you got you to gotta understand. Let me, let me help you understand everything that I'm uh, doing. God's never going to say that. God's never, never going to say when, when everything's crashing down in your world, he's ne- never going to come to you and just say, well, here, let me explain things for you. He just doesn't do it. He doesn't work that way. It'd be like you trying to explain Shakespeare to your dog. Like, you just get these kind of odd stares. But, but here's what God is saying. He, he constantly comes to people that, that ask him, and he just says, look, you don't get it because you're limited. Your knowledge is limited. Your power, your, your length of years is limited. Let's look at um, Job real quick here. Job goes on, and, and for 37 chapters, there's this dialogue, there's this kind of calling out, like, what is God doing? Even questioning God, like, who, who does God think he is? And so, so finally, in chapter 38, God answers Job. Listen to this. He says, uh, Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel with words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I just kind of took that to mean, put your cup on. I will question you, and you will make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determines its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? Uh, On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid the cornerstone when the morning star sang together? And all the sons of God shouted for joy. Or who shut in the sea with the doors when it burst out from the womb, when I made clouds its garments and thick darkness its swaddling band, and presi- prescribed limits for its and set bars and doors, and thus and said, Thus far you shall come and no further, and here you here shall your proud ways be stayed. Have you commanded the morning since your days began, and caused the dawn to know its place? that it might take hold of the skirts of the earth and, it, and the wicked be shaken out of it. It is changed like clay into, under the seal and its features stand out like a garment. From the wicked, their light is withheld and their uplifted arm is broken. And he just keeps going on and on. This, this happens for four chapters. In the middle of it, Job is finally like, oh, uh, no, I get it. I'll just keep my mouth shut. And God says, no, 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 no. Dress for action like a man. You wanted some answers. I have some questions first. And he goes on. And, and for the next four chapters, God is just going to show Job his limits. You're not God. You don't know what I'm doing. You don't know where I'm going with this. 
So if you don't know the very basics, like how I created the universe, and the, then how are you going to understand everything that is going on in your life, Job? And, and so similarly, he comes to Habakkuk. Just you, you're not going to get it. I mean, didn't even, even Garth Brooks got this one right, right? Like, I thank God for unanswered prayers, right? Like, I don't, I don't know. I don't listen to country music. I think it's part of the fall. But I, I, think, uh, I think he's like, talking about how uh, he used to pray for this girl and then he's at a high school football game and he sees the girl that he prayed for and he's like, whoa, praise God for unanswered prayers. Uh, just, just this moment where Garth is like, God, I'm glad you're in control and I'm not. I, I, I think that's how the song goes. Maybe someone can sing it for us here. Um, and so here's what God's going to say to him. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that's the Babylonians, that bitter and hasty nation who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come af from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. They all come for violence all their faces forward. They gather captives like sand, and at kings they scoff, and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on. Guilty men whose own might is their God. So, so you see what what God's answer to Habakkuk is. Habakkuk's like, God, your people are wicked. Aren't you going to do something about it? And God says, yes, I am. The more wicked Babylonians are going to come and take them out. That, that'd be like if you were praying, and some of us have lamented about uh, the, the direction the nation is going, the, the morality, the, where the, and you've cried out to God, and God said, don't worry. I've got it, Mark. Uh, I'm, I'm going I'm to give the North Koreans... Iran and ISIS, some special technology, they're going to rise up and just decimate America, Mark. So there you go. Like, what? God, the cure is worse than the disease. How is that possible? Why would you do that? So, well, you got to understand he's God and, and we aren't. How, how would you feel? How, how would you respond? You'd, you'd be hurt. You'd You'd be confused. You'd be crying out to God if that's what he revealed to you. And so then we get to Habakkuk's second complaint. Verse 12. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof? He's... It, it, it's, it's ironic that Habakkuk's first appeal is God's eternality. See, Habakkuk maybe is 50, 60 years old at this point. And, and he's saying, well, God, you're eternal, so, so clearly you're not going to do that. See, Habakkuk sees just a very small piece of the, the picture. Like, if you condense all of human history down to an hour, you and I live a microsecond. That's it. And, and that's Habakkuk's life, this microsecond life. He's calling out to God who's eternal. And he says, you're eternal. 
So it'd be like if I showed you a, a clip, if we could actually see it, uh, of just a, a split second of a new movie coming out, just like a split second, and say, say to you, tell me what the movie's about. You'd be like, what? No, tell me the plot. Is it in that? Like, maybe if, you, if, if in that split second you recognize the character, and you're like, oh, that character's usually an action film, then you might be able to get that. But that's about it. That's all you'd get. Now, now if I've seen the movie... Don't you, don't you think I'd have a little bit more information? Or what if the director was here in the front row and we're like, why don't you come up here and tell us about the movie? That, that would be. And what if the director was the star in the movie? You start to get the perspective of, of God in that. See, see, in Habakkuk's mind, he, he wants God to work on his timetable. That's ridiculous. It, it's ridiculous to expect God to work on our timetable. See, uh, we're limited in every way imaginable, and that's okay, because God made us this way. When we bump up against our limitations, that gives us an opportunity to say, you know what, I'm not that awesome. I- I- I'm not that, that powerful. I'm not that knowledgeable. When we bump into that, then we have a chance at joy, because we can turn to the one who is limitless, and we can begin to explore the depths of God's immensity, so no, so no one goes to the Grand Canyon, walks out on that little glass thing overhanging it and says, I finished my dissertation. Look at my bank account statement. Like no one, when they're faced with the immensity of beauty, looks inward and says, look how awesome I am. But you go to the Grand Canyon, you, you climb the mountain, you go to the ocean, and, and you see the power and the majesty of God, and, and you get lost in that. And, and you know what? You find joy in that. And that's what happens when we embrace our limits, that a day is coming when we will end. Uh, there is knowledge that, that goes far beyond us. We don't know that much. We're not that strong. We're not that healthy. All these things. If we embrace that and say, well, God is all those things, we can begin to get lost in his immensity. Tim Keller says, the person who says God has to make sense makes no sense. Do you really think God has to make sense to you? Like, do you really want to bring God so far down that, that you're only going to believe in him if everything lines up and makes sense? You're thinking of yourself more highly than you ought. Keller says, Habakkuk's like a two-year-old here having a temper tantrum. And often adults have temper tantrums with God when they don't understand what God is doing. And they'll abandon the faith and they'll walk away. But, but Keller will say, actually, you're worse than a two-year-old. You're less mature than a two-year-old in that moment because even a two-year-old after his tantrum will continue to follow his parents. He says, so just understand, it's okay if you don't know everything, if you don't get everything. Well, Habakkuk's going to continue and uh, he's going to appeal to, to his own righteousness because he hasn't got it yet. Verse 13, you, are, you who are pure eyes to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? So again, Habakkuk's like, look, I wanted you to do some discipline on, on your people, but not with those people. They're worse. He's got this kind of balance scale. He's, he's not thinking of the immensity of God's 
holiness. That before a holy God, we all in our own righteousness stand condemned. This is a game that we often play. They played it in Jesus' day as well. In Luke chapter 13, they came, it said this, there were some present at the very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them. Do you think they were worse offenders than the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. So, so there was the rumor that this tower fell on these people because they must have been really wicked people. Or, or, or the blood that was spilled because they were more wicked. It's the same thing that Habakkuk's doing. He's saying, um, look, we're better than them, God. So you shouldn't use them. And, God, and, and God's like not having it. So let me, let me, just, let me just wrap this up. Uh, the foundation of our joy is resting in our limitations and trusting in God. Now next week we'll unpack what that means. But let me just drop down to verse 14 of chapter 2. This is God's purpose. He says this. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. He says, that's going to happen. The glory of the Lord, the knowledge of the glory of the Lord will spread to every tribe, tongue, and nation. Habakkuk, you can't possibly understand how I'm going to make that happen. Now, we, we have 2,600 years of history to begin to see how God was making that happen. See, through the evil Assyrians and the wicked Babylonians, God would come in and scatter his people over the ancient Near East. After them, he would rise up the Greeks, and the Greeks would give the ancient Near East a common language. After that, he would rise up the Romans, and the Romans would spread and give what's known as the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. They would build roads, and they would create an atmosphere for travel to happen. When the gospel comes and begins to spread, where does it spread for first? It goes to the synagogues. And in those synagogues, these are Jews that were scattered by the Babylonians, scattered by the Assyrians, who had established synagogues across the ancient world. And in there, there was God-fearing Gentiles that people like the Apostle Paul and others would come to who first embraced the gospel. The gospel was spreading because God, the gospel of peace was spreading because God used the wicked, violent Babylonians to spread them 600 years before. So, so we, we begin to see, actually, God, you are accomplishing your purposes. We just don't see it in our limited, limited one frame of the picture. So how, how do we deal with this? Well, if you're like me, you spend an inordinate amount of time trying to manage the outcomes of your life. I think that's natural, but that's exhausting. That hamster wheel is exhausting. Try, trying to prove that you're, you're better than you are, trying to be smarter than you are, trying to be more powerful than you are. And so how should we respond? I think first is just coming before God and, and confessing our limitations. When we embrace our limitations, then we can then turn to God, the limitless one, and begin to engage him. Also to ask God to help you to step aside from trying to be the star of your life. 
Like you, you have a choice. You can either be the lead role in your life or, or a bit player in God's story of glory that will last forever. And that's the invitation of the gospel. And understand, there's going to be times, there's just going to be times when life doesn't make sense. In those times, we have to lean on something else. Um, after World War II, a prof, uh, professor of philosophy in Oxford wrote a parable called the Parable of the Resistant Leader. You got that, Paul? <laughs> That's all good. It says this. Imagine you are in German-occupied France during World War II, and you want to join the resistance movement against the Nazis. One evening in the local bar, a stranger comes up to you and introduces himself as the leader of the local partisans. He spends the evening with you, explaining the general requirement of your duties, giving you a chance to access his trustworthiness and offering you the chance to go no further. But his warning is stern. If you join, your life will be at risk. This will be the only face-to-face meeting you will have. After this, you will receive orders and you have to follow them without question, often completely in the dark as to the whys and the wherefores of the operations and always with a terrifying fear that your trust may be betrayed. Is such trust reasonable? Sometimes what the resistant leader is doing is obvious. He is helping members of the resistance. Thank heavens he's on our side, you say. Sometimes it's not obvious. He is in a Gestapo uniform, arresting partisans, and unknown to you, releasing them out of the sight of them, out of sight to help them escape the Nazis. But you always... But always you must trust and follow the orders without question, despite all appearances, no matter what happens. The the resistance leader knows best, you say. Only after the war will the secrets be open, the codes revealed, the two true comrades vindicated, the traitors exposed, and sense made of the explanations. This is kind of a parable of our lives on this side of eternity that there are times when it's going to make perfect sense what God is doing in your life. And other times where it's just not going to make sense except from this perspective of eternity. And it says only if we have, if the resistant leader has given us good reason will we trust him. Well, we already talked about how we can look through history and we see that God actually did use the Assyrians and Babylonians for the spread of the gospel across the planet. But the Babylonians were not the most wicked, violent people, most wicked, violent injustice on the face of the planet. That occurred on a Friday afternoon in ancient Rome. The most wicked, violent act in human history was when the Son of God was betrayed, beaten, and crucified. There is no greater injustice in history than that. And yet, we now look at it from this side of the cross. That's the most beautiful event the world has ever seen. Now, now that right there doesn't answer all the questions that you have about the pains and sufferings that you face, but it answers the ultimate question. If God can make the cross the most glorious thing in the universe, he can make anything in your life and my life for his glory and for our joy. So imagine what it was like for Habakkuk to hear this word. God, do something with your people. Oh, I'm going to do something with my people. Imagine how confused he must have been. 
Imagine how desperate he must have been, how saddened he must have been. I imagine he was like uh, the disciples on the Saturday after Good Friday, crying out to God, God, what are you doing? What, what, what's happening here? I imagine the pain and the sense of betrayal was that, that level. But again, we know one thing that they didn't. We know Sunday is coming. To that end, let me pray for us. And then Brad will lead us in communion. God, thank you for your word to us. You never promised to answer every question. And you never promised to give us more than we can handle. You always give us more than we can handle so that we can turn to you and trust you. So Lord, I pray that we do that. Sink our roots of our faith deep into you so that at the end of the day, we might find joy in trusting and resting in you. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.